Good evening. Well, whether you're joining us on the live stream or Edmund are here, let me congratulate you because you have made it to the end of the book of Revelation as of this lesson. So you've been through all the tribulation and tonight you get heaven. So for those of you who persevered, I mean, this is so biblical. You persevered, you deserve to get heaven. So that's what we'll talk about in this lesson. Uh, let me say a prayer for us and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for bringing us together to study your word. Pray you'd open our hearts and our minds that we might know more about you and that we might translate that into a greater love and a greater faith. Father, I lift up the needs and everyone listening or hearing at this time. Uh, too many for us to know. And frankly, Lord, I'm not wise enough to know how to, how to navigate through some of the difficulties of life, but you are. You see farther than we see and you work for the good of those who love you. And I pray that you would bless everyone here in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, let me give you just a quick, I'll do this again at the end, but I just want to give you a quick preview of what we're doing next. So we will finish Revelation chapter 21 and 22, New Heaven and New Earth in this lesson. Then next week is spring break here, and so we don't have any Wednesday night programming, so we won't have a class next week. The following Wednesday is Easter week. So we'll have in this room on Thursday of that week, so that's a couple weeks from tomorrow, week of Easter at noon and 6 p.m., we do the communion story. And that's a, a story that I'll tell. And if you've seen it before, I like to hear it every year. It's a way to just connect all the Bible together. So that's what we will do on Maundy Thursday, but we obviously wouldn't have a Wednesday night programming. So the next two Wednesdays, we won't have a series. What will we do next? I'll tell you at the end of the lesson. How's that? But for now, text your questions uh, during this lesson to this number. I think you probably all know that routine now. It's also on the bottom of your, your handout. But we are going to finish uh, the book of Revelation, and I want to remind you of the structure. Again, I know I repeat this a lot, but I really think you're going to understand this really well. First three chapters, letters to the seven churches. That's Jesus saying, John, write this to these seven churches. Some people think they're symbolic of all churches at all times. Some people think there are seven different kinds of churches. Others think it's seven letters to seven actual churches with lessons that apply to us today. Regardless of your view, we read those letters and say that's instructions from Jesus and encouragement and truth, and so we read it and we internalize it. Chapters 4 through 19 are the tribulation. I want to go... I'll uh, show you a slide here. The four views, four main orthodox views of the tribulation. Remember, that's chapter 4 to chapter 19. They differ on chronology, meaning, I'll say this one more time, if you think that the event, everybody thinks these events happen, everybody thinks it's true, all of these views hold the Bible to be true, they just answer the question, when will these things happen? And they see it a little differently. The preterists say, actually think all these events happened at the fall of Jerusalem or maybe the fall of the Roman Empire, but they happened in the past. A historicist says, you know, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming, I think that's chapter 4 through chapter 19, and it's sort of a roadmap of all the things that will happen in that time period. Futurist says, actually, all those things will happen in a seven-year time period sometime in our future. And finally, symbolic says, you know, these events are, re are recurring truths that have happened over and over again. This is for every Christian of all eras. So they disagree 
a little bit about chronology, but they all agree on God's judgment. This is the end of what Jesus said. He said, I will return and I will judge the world. Jesus has a lot of judgment parables. He came to save mankind. He will come to judge mankind. And so they all agree on God's judgment. Then we looked at that unique chapter 20. Chapter 20 deals with this, the only chapter in the Bible that talks about a thousand-year reign called the millennium. And that divides up into three views. And again, the views depend on when you think the second coming of Jesus will happen. So chapter 20 talks about Jesus coming. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Now, if you take that in a very uh, linear chronology, you'd probably be pre-millennial, meaning Jesus comes pre-before the millennium, the thousand-year reign. So Jesus comes, then there's a thousand-year reign on earth. If you take that a little bit differently and you see it not in a linear order, but that is sort of a flashback, which is not an, an unreasonable position, you might be post-millennial, meaning the millennium is happening and then Jesus will come, the second coming of Christ. So post or after the millennium. And then finally, there's an amillennial. Ah meaning not a literal thousand years. That, that's a very symbolic stretch of time and that we are actually in that time period now. So they may disagree on the chronology, but they all agree Jesus will come again. So I want to point out some of the unity of these views. I want you to understand the symbolism of the book so you're not afraid to read it. You should understand when you read various commentators, they'll tend to fall into one of these categories. And they may be right, they may not be right, but I want you to know that, that there's a base agreement on the fundamental truths of what's being said here. At, at best, these are people earnestly trying to understand what the Scripture says. And the points of agreement are far greater than the points of disagreement. Well, that brings us to chapter 21 and chapter 22, the very end. So we've had the tribulation, we've had the battle of Armageddon, chapter 19, then in chapter 20 we have judgment, the great white throne is set up and people are brought forward and books are opened and the book of life is opened and people are judged in chapter 20. Then you have this millennium happen. 21 and 22 moves on to talk about a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, that is the end. Chapter 20 in that judgment is the end of life as we know it, meaning temporal life, but it is the beginning of eternity. It's not the end of the story, it's the beginning of an eternal new story. So chapter 21 and 22 want to describe a little bit about what's coming next. So that also breaks down into a couple of different views, but here's what I want you to know. The views of the new heaven and new earth and I'm going to talk about three approaches people take. Some people read chapter 21 and 22 and take it very literally. And by that, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. We're going to break down all these views. Southers take it symbolically. Said, look, I don't disagree that this is true, but it's, it's intending to give you symbolic explanations for spiritual things. And then thirdly, some people take it completely spiritually. And we'll look at each one of those as we go through the text and you'll see why. But I want to emphasize this. All those views, they're not arguing about, is this true? They're simply arguing about, how is it true? In other words, what will heaven be like? And we could disagree with that, but nobody disagrees, is it true? Okay? 
So it's important that you know that because we spend a lot of time talking about different views so that you can think about this, you can reason about this, you can engage the scriptures instead of just having somebody up here telling you what you're supposed to believe. We want to believe what the Bible says, and that means we need to engage it. But in doing that, I don't want to give you the impression that Christians don't agree about anything. In fact, Christians agree about all the really important things. So with that having been said, let me start by asking you this. What do you think of when you think of heaven? I mean, some people think this, a beautiful new world that's just lush and green and beautiful, and they think of heaven as that kind of a paradise, if you will. Other people see it, uh, myself included, more like this, kind of a... That's heaven in my book. You know, it's uh, don't really need a lot of other people, just need some big trout. That's what you really need for heaven, right? But people see it as a beautiful place. Other people see heaven, if you think about it, as a very relational place. That's not, not wrong either. You know, that's it's the idea of being joyously with other believers, being reunited with loved ones who are there in eternity with us. And I can't tell you that any one of these pictures is necessarily right, but I can tell you one thing that heaven is not. I hear this a lot, and I'm sorry, I just want to rebut this. This is, this is a heretical belief, and that is that heaven is endless rounds of golf. That <laughs> cannot be true, because that would not be heaven for me, all right? I mean, golf, I'm just... No offense, because I'm a golfer too, but I believe it is fundamentally of the devil. And here's why I tell you that. <laughs> Have you ever noticed people will say things playing golf that they would never normally say? You know, it doesn't bring out the best in us. Okay, all kidding aside, we have images of heaven in our mind, and it's hard to grasp, isn't it? Well, let's engage the text a little bit and see, uh, you know, what the text might hint to us about what heaven is like. Well, the first thing I want to tell you is I want to close a loop, by the way. Uh, the Bible is very interconnected. I know sometimes we teach it like this story and that story, and sometimes, God forbid, we even teach it like once upon a time, you know, as if it's a kind of a fairy tale. But once you start to study it, you realize, wait a minute, God, this whole thing ties together. God's actually been doing something coherent here. And I want to show you one of those things. So Revelation 22, uh, he says this, Then the angel, this is John having a vision, the angel showing him something, showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And I just want to ask you, what does this remind you of? Garden of Eden. The imagery is exactly... We're at the very end of the Bible. I want to take you all the way back to the first two or three chapters of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, the way God originally created it and said, this is good, 
You have the tree of life. You have the river. You have God dwelling with Adam and Eve and walking the garden and interacting with them. And so here at the end, you see the story, in a sense, coming full circle. It says there's no more curse. If you remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground because of their sin. All of creation was under a curse, if you will. It began to decay. It began to show the effects of sin and death which had entered the world. Here he says, we're back to God's original intent, and there is no death, and there is no curse. And so I want you to see how God has brought everything full circle. Again, one other thing I wanted to point out, and this is kind of a small thing, but to me this is a really cool thing. Think about, uh, this is kind of a Bible trivia thing, so don't feel bad if you don't know it. Uh, When does light show up in the book of Genesis? Light shows up at the very beginning, doesn't it, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But here's the interesting thing. It's not until the fourth day of creation that the sun is created. So where is this light coming from? This light comes from God. Now look at the end. The sun and the moon and the universe has all been destroyed uh, in a previous chapter. We kind of destroyed them in chapter 19. Awkward. Right, so now... Here in chapter 21 and 22, we talk about the new heavens and new earth. There is no need for a sun or moon. Why? Because God himself is their light. I simply mention these little things to show you this is God trying to say, the first thing I want to tell you about heaven is it sets things right. It sets things back to the way I created them with no death, no suffering, no pain, no sin, no rebellion, and eternal life. So I don't want you to think of heaven as something new, if you will. God's giving us hints here that I'm restoring things back to my original plan. Humanity sinned, and it has taken all this time and this great sacrifice of his son, but I have restored you back to the way you were created. Question? couple of questions about the Garden of Eden. Uh-huh. Do we know where it was? Do we know where the Garden of Eden was? No. Uh, essentially, no. Now, Google it on the internet, you'll get all kinds of really interesting stories with all kinds of really persuasive-sounding things, but at the end of the day, we do not. If you think about the Garden of Eden being in a particular place, most people would say, it's probably somewhere in Mesopotamia. In other words, the cradle of life, so to speak. Think Iraq, Iran. Actually, think Iraq, not Iran. But anyway, basically, in Mesopotamia, most people think that. But there's no way to actually know that. Is there a connection between the location of Mount Sinai and the Garden of Eden since Mount Sinai was also holy? Is there a connection between Mount Sinai and the Garden of Eden since Mount Sinai was also holy, a place where God communicated with Moses? There does not appear to be any geographic connection because Mount Sinai, whose location is also slightly debatable, but really realistically in the Sinai Peninsula. Wow, what a coincidence. Anyway, in the Sinai Peninsula and uh, Mesopotamia is not geographically close. It doesn't seem like there's a connection. Good questions. Well, let's jump in because I want to talk to you about these three views. And let's start first with a literal, linear view. In other words, if you read this and you say there's no symbolism here, this is exactly, means exactly what it says, no symbolism, 
and it's going to follow chronologically on. Here's, how, here's where we get. So let's start here. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is chapter 21, right after we finished judgment, the millennium. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Think restoring things to the original design for the old order of things has passed away. So that's the idea of a literal new place, a new Jerusalem, a place that has been prepared, appears and you see a new physical existence. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 65. This is 700 years before the time of Christ, so it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy about end times. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Interesting. 700 years before Christ, Revelation about 95 years after Christ. And you, you see the same themes. You see the same plan of God. I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. So here in Revelation 21, you read about a new Jerusalem coming down. So if you take that in a very literal way, and I'm literal, I don't mean true or not true. Don't, don't read much. Meaning simply, there literally is a new city, Jerusalem, and it's literally coming down. So this is a literal new physical place. The only argument you might have, and the Jews had this question as well as people do today, is will this new earth, so to speak, will this new universe, if you will, is it going to be created brand new or is it going to be renewed the old earth? It's basically the question of will you build or remodel? That's basically the question, seriously, that the literal view comes into. It says, look, there's going to be a new physical earth an earth not like this earth, but an earth like it was supposed to be. The question is, is God going to you know, bulldoze it and build a new one, replace it, or is he going to remodel? Is he going to renew what's here? So let me give you arguments for both sides of that. But both of them think new literal earth is here. It's just going to be the way God originally designed it. So for example, here's an argument for replacing it. This is Second Peter, New Testament. Peter's writing this to Christians. You should live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. He's looking forward to the chapter 20, the day of God, the coming of Christ, the judgment, and the time when we get to live with God. He said, if you look forward to that day, you should live holy and godly lives. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And when they say heavens, I should have told you this earlier, I'm not talking about the same heaven. They basically divided the universe into the earth and the heavens. So think of heavens as the rest of the universe, okay? So the universe will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So what Peter is, seems to be implying, if you look at it in a very literal way, is God is going to destroy this world 
and he is going to recreate, he will speak into existence a new creation. So that's kind of the replace the existing world. That has an interesting implication, by the way. People who see it this way, if you aren't careful, you will look at this world as flawed, not very good, and you will litter a lot. Because you know, you're kind of thinking, why do we need to take care of this planet? It's going to be toast anyway, right? So but my point is, if, if you see Christians who have the view that this earth is not going to be around anymore, we want to be careful because one of the implications of that is this is a bad place and we should not bother to take care of it. It's sort of like being renters, all right? It's like, hey, I'm not living here forever, so you know, I'm not going to fix the hole in the wall. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but you get my idea there is if you aren't careful, you'll get that implication. On the other hand, other people that see it literally and say this will be a brand, I mean, this is going to be a literal earth, a literal universe. God's going to have a physical existence, if you will, not exactly like this. They might look at this passage. Paul says this, see, all creation fell not just humanity. And so the ground was cursed. The universe has been decaying. It is also suffering the effects of sin and death. But here's what Paul says. He said, the creation itself awaits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And what he means by that is chapter 20 to happen and God to reclaim his people. And here we live in him with heaven. Even the universe is looking forward to that. Why? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all of the universe has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So you read this and you say, you know what? It sure sounds like this creation is, you know, this creation is going to be made right. Just like you and I were redeemed, if you will, we were slaves to sin, and because of the blood of Christ and his resurrection, he redeemed us and made us reborn. And so some people think this universe is going to be restored, if you will, and made new. It may not be an important argument in the sense that both of them think there will be a physical heaven, basically will be a new physical universe and new earth, but one like the Garden of Eden. In my view, one that does not have mosquitoes in it because that can't be heaven. You know, so those had to have been a result of the fall. But basically, that's the view. And some would say new, others would say no, it's going to be renewed. The ones who think it's uh, going to be renewed, interestingly, tend to be very motivated saying, we need to get started now restoring the world and tend to be very ecologically sensitive. In other words, let's start renewing the world as part of what God is doing to renew us. Does that make sense? So it does kind of make a difference in, in Christians' attitude toward our posture with this world. But in the big scheme of things, they're both very literal views of what heaven will be like. So how about a more symbolic view? How, what might you read and how might you look at it and say, and all you have to change is this one assumption, and that is, the pictures that you're seeing and the things that it's describing in 21 and 22 are apocalyptic literature. They're symbolic. They are trying to use earthly pictures to describe something to you that's not really earthly. In other words, trying to use language we understand as symbols to explain what heaven would be like. Let me show you what I mean. So a symbolic view might look at this. 
This is a description. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, talking about the new Jerusalem, thinking, think heaven here. And that's pure gold as pure as glass. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, where you get the idea of the pearly gates. Each gate made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. And so the idea is that heaven is basically a new creation of God. It is not a, just a new earth and a new universe. It's a different kind of place. And so instead of saying there's literally going to be a city with streets of gold and the gates are going to be one big pearl and they're going to be all these jewels on this city, that those are symbols to help us understand what will heaven be like. Well, obviously, you think about streets of gold, you think, wow, this is... I mean, this is like nicest nice that you could ever imagine. Gold is so valuable, and in heaven they pave the streets with it. In other words, in heaven, the value system will be turned upside down. It's precious things will just be common there. That's how wonderful it will be. And the idea of pearls for gates, giant pearls. In other words, you get this idea of unbelievable prosperity. And so it begins to paint heaven as a place where wherever it may be, and in whatever realm or dimension heaven might be, is we will be with God in his kind of a dwelling. And so these are not literal. These are simply symbols to help point to how wonderful heaven will be in ways you and I can understand. We understand physical things. He said, think of the best physical things you can imagine. Streets of gold, pearly gates, you know, un unbelievable. You think of that? That's kind of what heaven's like. It's better than you could possibly imagine. So it's a way to paint the place of heaven. The hard part with that is, and by the way, this is most people's idea of heaven. You know, pearly gates, streets of gold. Uh, everybody gets a harp and sits around and, and plays, I don't know, probably contemporary praise music. I don't know. But, you know, you play something on the harps. It's kind of that otherworldly view of heaven. At best, those are symbols trying to get you to evoke the feeling of, oh, wow, Heaven is going to be beyond what I can even imagine. But we've kind of taken it a little bit literally, and so you get these images of heaven. The problem with that is this world goes away, and you really have no concrete idea. So I don't say that it's a problem in the sense that it's not true. I'm just saying that view sometimes, while it may be true, is a little hard to get your, your mind around because we don't really have good correlations to some of these symbols. Uh, and then the second thing, let me finish this and we'll take some questions. Of that symbolic, some people say, wait, it's not symbolic of what heaven looks like. It's symbolic of what heaven will be like and what it will feel like. In other words, what all these things about this new Jerusalem is not so much trying to tell you where heaven is. It's trying to tell you what is going to be there. So in other words, it's basically saying this. Where heaven is, is not nearly as important as who is there. In other words, it is the dwelling of God. It is being with Jesus Christ. In other words, all these things are simply to tell you, you get to be where God is. In other words, what it's saying is, where you are at with God is not nearly as important as who you now are in God. In other words, you are reunited with your family you have been adopted as a child of God and you will live in his household. So the symbolic idea could be talking about a place, giving you symbols to tell you what heaven is like, 
Or some people think, no, it's actually giving you symbols to tell you what heaven will feel like. It doesn't matter where it is. What matters is you get to be like Christ and you get to be with him. So those are a couple flavors of the symbolic view. Question? Do you think that the destruction of the heavens by fire is the sun exploding? Do I think the destruction of the heavens by fire is the sun exploding? If you think about, uh, I mean, that would be a good start. Let's just face it, that, that's a pretty good way to kick this thing off. Uh, if you take that in a very literal way, again, that, that presupposes that literally the elements in the universe will be destroyed by heat, if you will. The elements themselves will melt in the heat, the text says, and that they will essentially burn up, if you want to think about it that way. Well, you can, there are a couple of ways you can take this. One is try to reconcile it with what we know about physics, right? And so you're going to end up with some kind of cataclysmic event in the universe. Other people don't bother to try that. They simply say, God created this with a word. God can burn it up with a word. In other words, it will be the fire of God. Remember in the flood, God said, I resolve I will no longer destroy the earth by water. And so you tend to see this idea of it being burned up and purified. Burning in, uh, in the Bible is often associated like you would burn sacrifices. Why do you burn sacrifices? It's a symbol of purifying something. And so you, you see this purified. The sun explodes, doesn't sound like that would destroy the universe. It would destroy you or in my version of it. So maybe so. If God is restoring things to its original state with heaven, then a couple of different questions. Is it possible at that point for there to be another fall of man? And if the goal is to get back to where we started, then why did God let all this happen to begin with? Yeah, well, let's see. Let's take those in reverse order. Those are great questions. First of all, let's take the idea of if we're just getting back to where we started, why did God create anything to begin with? That's a fair question to ask from our perspective, admitting that we do not know what God knows, we do not see what God sees, and so it's very difficult to evaluate the purposes. Let me, let me put it to you this way. This isn't my answer but you'll get this, this image. Anybody has ever worked in a large company? I mean, some of you work in small companies, some of you are in charge, you're making all the decisions. You ever worked in a large company? And you know, you get these decisions handed down from on high. And we used to say they're kind of like cancer in the sense that no one knows where they come from, but you can't ignore them. You know, it's like you get these crazy things. You go, who is running this place? What is going on? And you realize that from where you sit, you only see part of it. And sure enough, sometimes those things make a lot of sense, but you can't tell from where we see. And that's a little where we are here. We're living inside the system, and we step back and we go, why even do this at all? Well, then you ask the question of why create beings that you know are going to fall? Well, that's made Christians think of this in two ways. Some Christians will say, God didn't know we were going to fall. He can't predict what will happen to free moral agents. I don't accept that view myself. I think it's, I understand why people might want to see it to resolve this problem. I simply would step back and have faith in this, that God had a purpose in doing so. And that if you think about it, if nobody ever gets created, then there's nobody in heaven. There's nobody in hell, but there's nobody in heaven. There's no love, there's no creativity creativity, there's no beauty. 
And so the inevitability of what was going to happen, the end result, I presume in God's economy was worth it. Can I see that? No more than my toddler can understand why it's worth it for them to go to bed early. That's to keep me from killing you because it's time for you to go to bed, you know. But my point is, we cannot always see God's purposes, but we must presume that there is a purpose there. Second question, uh, which was the first one, I've already forgotten, so remind me about that one. Is it possible once we have the new heaven that there would be another fall? Yeah, this is a question that I've had endless, really robust discussions with people about. So, can you sin in heaven? I want to reframe it. If you get the new heaven and the new earth, will we be free moral agents there? Will we be able to sin? Some people will say, no, it is not possible to sin in heaven. Others say, yes, we will still have free will. Here's how I want to resolve it. I think it's a, the, the text does not answer this, first of all. So we're in the realm of conjecture and putting some pieces together. There's no definitive answer to that question here. God does not deign to answer all of our questions. But if I had an opinion, it would be this. I think, no, there will not, not because we no longer have any freedom. We don't turn into robots, in my view, in heaven. I see nothing to indicate that. But simply, when we are there, we will become like Christ. We will be glorified. We will be sanctified. In other words, the question is, can you have sinners in heaven? How do sinners get to heaven? You see what I'm trying to say? We are being transformed. If you think of salvation as a transaction, I'm getting too deep into this, but let me just say, if you think of salvation as a transaction, raise my hand, all heads bowed, all eyes closed, or I walked an aisle or something, now you're saved, you're good forever. You're going to have sinners in heaven. And that's a problem textually. Fortunately, I don't think that's what the Bible says salvation is. We do indeed get transformed from death to life, but then we, in following Christ, we become transformed into the image of Christ. When we get to heaven, I don't think we will sin will be in our nature anymore. Does that make sense? We will not sin because of who we are, not because we don't have the option. That's an opinion. It, essentially, the text does not, uh, does not answer that question. That's a good question. In Mark 20, 27... Jesus is talking about there not being marriage in heaven. So when we get to heaven, will we know our spouses, our family, our friends? Okay, well, I'm kind of skating on thin ice. She's saying basically Jesus said there wouldn't be marriage in heaven, so when we get there, will we know our spouse, will we know our friends? Okay, some scholars have argued that if there were marriage in heaven, it wouldn't be heaven. Mainly <laughs> mainly female scholars. Uh, yeah. All right, I made that up. But that's a, that's a fair question. So the new creatures that we become, the new bodies, Jesus is basically saying that that is not the order of our eternal life. It seems extremely unlikely. Again, the scripture doesn't specifically answer this. It seems extremely unlikely that we will not know each other. But I want you to think about it a little differently. I don't want you to think about it as, oh, I recognize that guy. Oh, yeah, I recognize you. I was married to you for 35 years. You know, it's, I don't think it's going to be that. I think when you get to heaven, you see people as we are. I think if you think about heaven, think of seeing people's essence of who they are. We are so physically bound in this existence. We think of, I mean, let me think, talk to you about your spouse for just a second. You, have, you think of your spouse in some ways 
as, a, as an appearance, as a, a body, as my spouse looks like this, my spouse speaks like this, my spouse moves and gestures like this. But the more you're married, you realize even if that changed, I would recognize my spouse because I know who he is inside. Does that make sense? Think about that being heaven. So will we recognize each other? In my opinion, yes, but not from what we look like, but from who we really are. I think we'll have an intimacy in heaven that marriage only hints at, and that's why marriage doesn't happen. We'll be even more intimately uh, in bond with each other. The reference on that was probably not correct, but... um... The reference wasn't, but that's okay. I knew what you meant, or what the questioner meant. Well, since Mark has 16 chapters, I knew it probably wasn't in Mark 20. But Jesus did say that. And that, yeah. I'm not going to nitpick. It was a good question. That's a very good question. Yeah. As Catholics say, do we need a special grace to get into heaven? Yes. Do we need a special grace to get into heaven? That is not really a Protestant doctrine. I don't find that to be a biblical doctrine. I understand it is a traditional Catholic doctrine. I'll, just, I'll probably just leave it at that because I'm not mean to argue about it or anything. I just don't find anything in the text that would support that idea. Okay, well, good. Let's go on to our third view. So we've talked about a literal view because I want to get to a particular topic at the end when we get through these three. I don't know how helpful this is to you, but as you engage this text and you read it, I'd urge you to read chapter 21 and 22. And as you read it, think, I can see that if this were literal, this would be describing a new place. And if so, it's awesome. I can see if this is symbolic, it's really trying to explain to me more Something that I, uh, that I can't understand, like a toddler trying to understand quantum physics. It's like, it's real, but I can't quite explain it to you, and God's doing his best to use the images that I know. That's a great way to read it. The third way people look at it is to say, this is symbolic, but it's actually um, spiritual. And what I mean by that is this. Look, here's 21.9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Think New Testament. The church, God's, when I say the church, I'm talking about believers, followers of Christ, are referred to as the bride of Christ. Back in the tribulation, we had the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the faithful followers of Christ are reunited with him at this great banquet, and we go to live with Christ forever. We go to heaven. So this seems to be very, very suggestive this is talking about the church. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, meaning this is a vision, to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So what is he equating here? The bride of Christ and this new Jerusalem. It's what this view, the spirit, it's called a spiritual view. It says, you know what heaven, what this is really trying to tell me about? It's not trying to tell me what heaven looks like. It's just trying to tell me that the Christ, the Christians being with Christ, that is heaven. In other words, that is heaven. What does it look like? Don't know. That's not what it's trying to tell me. Where is it? Don't know. It's not trying to tell me. And is that even important? No, actually it's not. Being united with Christ wherever he is, is heaven. Does that make sense? And that passage does seem to equate the bride of Christ, which is typically, well, always the church in the New Testament, and this new city. 
So you get a literal view, new, new creation. You get a symbolic view. It's trying to describe the spiritual place, but use physical images. And thirdly, a spiritual view that says, you know, I'm not sure chapter 21 and 22 are actually trying to tell you about the place. I think they're trying to tell you about who we're with and what that will be like. Does that make sense? All of those are potentially legitimate, and it's possible they're all true at the same time. So our image of heaven, I found it's useful to know that because if you're just trying to gut it out and envision heaven, it's kind of hard. But if you think about it relationally, maybe it's not so hard. If you think about it as a new heaven, a new earth, a new physical place, maybe that's not so hard for you. I think it helps us to get our mind around the beauty and the glory of heaven. And if one of these views helps you do that better than another, I think that's very useful to us. Okay? Those are kind of the views of heaven. So I want to answer two questions. One, who will be in heaven? So briefly, and this is not hard because the scripture is really pretty clear about this. Chapter 21, this is Jesus speaking. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega and everything is done. We've come full circle. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Kind of reminds you of the woman at the well. When Jesus' ministry, the woman at the well says, you want me to give you a drink? He says, you drink that, you'll be thirsty again, but I'll give you water and you'll never be thirsty. He's talking about eternal life. And here you see it. He says, he, uh, I will give him to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life, eternity. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So who will be in heaven? So you get just what Jesus said when he was here teaching. He said they're sheep and they're goats. They're those who serve God, those who serve money. They're, in other words, there is those who have followed Christ and who have become molded to his image. These, I do not believe, are an exhaustive list. I simply think this is trying to describe all of those sinful practices, saying that leads to death. It does not lead to life. And so those who have followed Christ, who have been shaped into the image of Christ, whom God has, we call that sanctified. In other words, made holy. Not changed our behavior, changed who we are. In Christ. That's who will be in heaven. The second question, which you may find even more interesting, is when will you get there? This is probably one of the most asked questions is, let's assume for a minute that we're all going to heaven, and I do make that assumption. So let's assume for a minute that we are all going to heaven. When will we get there? There are two views of this, and you will probably hold your view pretty strongly. But the scripture, and I'm just going to give you two scriptures as representative of how people try to understand this, because apparently God is not deigned to answer this in terms you and I can understand easily. But look at this. This is Paul talking to the church in Philippi. He's in jail. He might be killed. And so he writes this. He said, for me, to live is Christ. There's a great example of what it's like to go to heaven. In other words, it is not I, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. So for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, that will mean fruitful labor, meaning I'll just keep preaching and doing what God wants me to do. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire 
to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But I believe it's more necessary for you that I remain in this body. He's saying, I don't think they're going to kill me. They might. And if they do, hallelujah. I get to go be with Jesus. But I think God still has plans for me to do some things with you. And that's necessary. And I don't think that I'll, I'll be killed. But when you read this, it seems like he's saying, if I die, I get to be with Christ. And so there's this idea that you go immediately to heaven when you die. That's a very popular view and a popular way of talking about when do you go to heaven. I mean, at most funerals, you'll say that, you know, so-and-so is probably in heaven right now, you know, with Christ. And so there is that view in the scriptures that we would go directly to heaven. The other view is that you sleep and you do not go immediately to heaven, that death is like sleep. Think of death as really good anesthetics instead, right? Or anesthesia. You know, if you've ever had a procedure done and, you know, they say, count backwards from 100, which, by the way, anesthesiologists, ha ha, you know we're only going to get to 98. Yeah, I mean, you, you're just playing with us at that point. You know, 199, 98, I'm gone. And they're just, you know, they're chuckling, like, ha ha ha, didn't think you could do it. But anyway, so you get put under, right? You wake up. You have, you feel pleasant. I mean, great, right? And you go, wow, is it done? What happened? They go, yeah, I mean, it's hours, right? But you have no sense of the passage of time. So I want you to think about it as being simply close your eyes one moment, open your eyes, and wow, here's judgment day or, you know, resurrection, right? So you, you would sleep for that period of time even though you would experience no time. Here's why... Uh, or one of the reasons. I'm, like I say, I'm just sampling some scriptures. Here's 1 Thessalonians talking about the second coming of Christ. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the second coming of Christ. The dead in Christ means Christ followers who have already died. Okay. So at the second coming of Christ, that's when all of the Christ followers will rise, meaning they've obviously been sleeping since they died. And so they will rise first. After that, whoever's Christ followers are still alive will be caught up with them in the air to meet the Lord. Now, some people think this is the rapture, not the second coming. But it doesn't really affect my point. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So if you read that, you tend to think that, well, logic would seem to imply that when you die, you sleep, and that we will be raised, chapter 20, we go before the great white throne, and we are judged, some to heaven, some to the lake of fire. If you think that you go directly to heaven, then chapter 20, that great white throne judgment, has to only be for the bad guys. Because, let's face it, it's not like you die, you go to heaven, and they say, hey, uh, just want you to know you're a provisional, you know, uh, you've got pool privileges and everything for a little while, but when judgment day comes, if you don't make it, we take this all back, right? Okay, nobody thinks that's what's happening. So if you die and you go directly to heaven, then in chapter 20, you would understand that is not judgment, but condemnation. In other words, everybody that shows up there are the people that aren't going to heaven. That makes sense? Others would say, you know, it seems more reasonable to read this passage and presume that we sleep for that time period, and then we're raised. So I wanted you to understand why people see those two views 
At the end of the day, does it really matter? I mean, maybe your answer is yes, but they both would agree we will be raised from the dead. We will see Christ face to face. It's just a little difference on what is the timing for that. Question? So when do the new bodies come in? When do the new bodies come in? New models. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul there is instructing the Corinthians about what's going to happen. And he said, you know, he said, this is kind of a mystery. He said, first of all, what you will be in heaven is like, think of a seed. You have to plant a seed, but then it turns into something else. And he said, this is a perishable, corruptible body. We know that. They wear out, they die, they run out of warranty. My warranty ran out many years ago, apparently. And so he said, this dies, but it's like a seed, and you will be new. You will be incorruptible. He said, you, you die a perishable, corruptible body. You are raised an imperishable, uncorruptible body. He said, makes sense. You say, yes, it does. He said, we do not know exactly what we shall be, but we know we shall be like him, talking about Christ. So will we look like this? I hope we look better than this. But my point is, will we look like we look now? Seems likely. Will we be 50 years old? Will we be 12 years old? It seems like that's an irrelevant question. Paul says, we don't know exactly what we will be, but we know we will be a perfect, incorruptible, non-dying body, and we will look like Christ. We will recognize each other, I think, this is an opinion, by our essence, not so much by our facial appearance. So the new body seems to come in at the resurrection. So if you think you go to heaven when you die, you are raised, right? You die, you are literally resurrected at that moment and go to heaven, you would be in that new imperishable body. If you think that we sleep, then we are raised, you are given this new imperishable body at the ultimate resurrection. Either way, everybody agrees what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 15 does indeed happen. It's a good question. Jesus rose from the dead, and they didn't recognize him. Is that your impression of our bodies and our spirits? Yeah, good question. There's a lot of discussion about the idea. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was apparently not immediately recognizable to people, but then again, recognizable later. In other words, he, people see him and don't realize that's Jesus. You don't know how much of that is that they don't expect to see someone rise from the dead. They, they did not get that idea until they saw it. But then you see Thomas looking at Jesus, touches the holes in his hands and the nails and the uh, side, and he goes, oh, my Lord and my God. You see Jesus coming to them and they're fishing, and John says, I think that's the Lord. And so there does seem to be something different about Jesus in that time period. But whatever it may be would be conjecture. In other words, the scripture doesn't describe that. It does clearly say we will have an imperishable body that does not age, does not die, and we will be like Jesus. So it's kind of interesting and fascinating, but it's really hard to draw a lot of conclusions from it. Good question, though. Okay, I have several questions about um, what Jesus said to the thief on the cross about seeing him in paradise today. Yes. So, where's paradise? And why does Jesus use that word? So the question is, thief on the cross, one of them reviles Jesus, the other says, you know, hey, we deserve this, he didn't. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Great question. So, two questions here. Is paradise the same thing as heaven? 
And then the second question, if it is the same thing as heaven, then at least for that one guy, it certainly seems to imply that he's going to be resurrected when Christ is resurrected. The word paradise, and so I'm not going to try to dance around this. I'm just going to tell you what you can tell from the Scripture. The word paradise is not the same word that's used for new heaven and new earth. I'm not saying it must not be the same thing. I'm just saying it's a curious use of a word. It's a Persian word originally. And so paradise was like a hunting preserve, a pleasure park. I mean, it's literally a Persian word that meant the king's hunting uh, preserve that he had. In other words, they thought of that as a really nice place, right? You've got plenty of, of wild game. There's plenty of food. It's enjoyable to go hunt. I mean, the Persian kings did that. They called that paradise. So it gets carried down and becomes to mean, paradise comes to mean like a really nice place. And it comes to be a little bit of at least a metaphor for heaven. So the question here is, there's no doubt Jesus is describing a place outside this world, a place of delight. Is he talking about spiritually? That this day, because of that confession, you're saved. You will live eternally. Or is he being more specific, saying, you're coming with me this day to a place? Well, some would say Jesus didn't go to heaven right away. He went into the grave, and he was under the power of Satan for three days before he was raised. So you can see how the text doesn't, in my view, doesn't allow you to be dogmatic about it. But I'm not trying to dance around it. Whatever paradise is, Jesus meant that. I think it's difficult to be dogmatic and say that has to be the same thing as heaven. And so he definitely went to heaven that day. Let me put it this way. It's a good thing for Jesus to say to you. But... I think the text doesn't allow us to be too dogmatic. So that's a fancy way of saying, I don't think anybody really knows exactly if that means you will be with me in heaven today. But it does seem to indicate your confession, your sins are forgiven and you will be saved. So I know that's not satisfactory, but I think that's as far as the text would allow us to go. What about cremation? Great question. What about cremation? We get this question a lot, so I'd like to address that. There are certain Christian traditions that do not think cre cremation is a good thing to do, that burial is our tradition. And if you think that, you should do that. I do not uh, think there's anything wrong with being buried. So cremation, though, would there be anything wrong with being cremated? By the way, cremations are, uh, this is totally off the wall, but... Uh, we do a lot of funerals here. Cremation's going way up in the U.S. Much, much higher percentage of people being cremated than buried for a variety of reasons. So it does bring up this legitimate question. It seems to me, and I'm going to give you an opinion, and I'm going to give you some reasoning now. I'm not going to point to the scripture because there's nowhere in here that says, hey, you better be buried, you better not be cremated, or that it's okay to be cremated or not. There's nothing that specific. So let me just reason with you a little bit. We know that it is possible for things to happen to our body in death that our body no longer exists. I mean, in war, in tragedies, it, that our body literally is gone. It is, God forbid, blown up or something happens. No one thinks, and rightly so, that the God who spoke us into existence cannot resurrect the soul and give this new creation body to that person. And in fact, 
we will not have this body. We will have a bodily resurrection, meaning we will have this new 1 Corinthians 15 body. We will not have this corruptible body. So no matter what, I don't think anybody could argue that if you don't have a physical body, there's nothing in the grave, you can't be resurrected. Don't think there's any way you can argue that. Therefore, it seems to me that even if we were cremated, it has no effect whatsoever on God's, our soul is not cremated, we are eternal, and then he will give us this new body. My opinion is that there is nothing that I can find in the text that would speak against cremation or in any way affect God's ability to resurrect us. Having said that, if you have a strong feeling that you don't sense that's right, then, then don't do that. That makes sense? I can find no textual reason in the scriptures or reason that cremation would be prohibited. Now, others may disagree on various grounds, but I don't think we'll, we'll disagree about the text. We may just disagree in an opinion. But my opinion is that cremation is okay. I mean, I hope that's helpful to you. A few questions about who will be in heaven. Some questions about who will be in heaven. Okay, yes. let's see. You and you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Specifically, God decides that, not us. People who died before Christ walked, like the people who are in the Hall of Faith. I have yeah. a question about them specifically, and other people who lived before Christ's time but were faithful to God. And then people who've never heard the word, will they be in heaven? And then my last question about that is, those people outside the city gates, are they going to get a chance to go in? Are they maybe the people who lived before Jesus' time? You know, it's like right at 7.30, and I suspect <laughs> you guys are probably really ready to go home, uh, much as I like to talk about that. This is going to be hard. Uh, be care if, I, if I don't say something, don't take that to mean I don't believe something. In other words, I'm going to give you a really short answer to this, and it probably will not be satisfactory. So first of all, I mean, it's probably not even fair to say this, but I don't want to dodge it. What about the people who died before Christ? couple of different ideas because it's difficult to answer that question. Uh, we trust, first of all, in all these situations, will not the creator of the whole world do right? I mean, that's Abraham's question to God. It's like, you're God, will you not do justice? And the answer to that is, only God can do what is just. In other words, if I were deciding about the people, if I were judging, thank God I'm not judging the world. I can't judge the world. I don't know enough. I wouldn't judge rightly. I wouldn't judge justly. We believe that God judges justly, meaning he knows everything and his decisions are not just authoritative, they're right, they're true. Let me preface it by saying, I believe that. If we don't believe that, you're going to have a real heartburn with these questions. Fair enough? So I'm going to come from the point of view that God will always do what is right. Christians, I'm painting with a broad brush, two views that there are different dispensations, there are different arrangements, basically, that God has with people. So people, for example, under the law of Moses would be judged in that standard, their standard, not of perfection, but of faithfulness to that law of Moses. Christians will be judged in that dispensation of trust in Jesus Christ. That's one idea, is you are judged by what you know. That would imply, if I can bring another question in, if you have never heard Christ, you've never heard about Jesus Christ, 
which by the way, is a little bit of a red herring because you and I have, so we know what we need to do, right? But as a hypothetical, then that school of thought would say those people will be judged by what they know, that there is a certain right and wrong written on the heart of humanity. And Paul is going to argue in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, it doesn't matter if you're Christian, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, doesn't matter if you're a moral person, doesn't matter if you've never heard of God. Even if you get judged by your own standards, you fail. I believe that to be true. So one school of thought would say you are judged by what you know, by what arrangement you have with God. Second school of thought says, no, everybody enters eternity through Jesus Christ. And in some way, and there's some scripture that, that hints at this, that the word about Jesus will be preached even to those who are dead. And there will be some mechanism by which God will do justly. They will be able to believe in Christ or not. Rough, rough answer. Those are kind of two schools of thought. Both of them predicated on the idea that whatever God does, it will be just, it will be true, it will be right. Does that make sense? Okay, there was one other question. That was, what about people who haven't heard about Christ? It's kind of covered in this, the idea of what about the people before Christ? We answered that. I think the next one was about the people outside the gates. Can they get in? Yes. Yeah, another oh, trivial little question here is, is hell forever? Is it eternal torment? There are so many ideas on this, it isn't funny. I tell you, modern Christians, particularly those who move just a little bit toward a liberal side, really have heartburn with the idea of an eternal hell. And uh, although the text, for what it's worth, the text seems to imply that hell is eternal, hell is not pleasant. But some people have a problem with that, and so they want to ask the question, is hell retribution, meaning eternal punishment for your sins, or is hell, in some sense, restorative, meaning you go to hell, and in some sense you get another chance to change your ways, and so that hell isn't always forever, there is a way to leave hell and go to heaven. Let me just classify, it goes all the way to Rob Bell's Love Wins, which is so far left, it's off the stage, to kind of a more of a moderate, hey, after you've been in hell for a while, it's not intended to be forever, you can convert at that point, which is still over here, somewhere on the left. But basically, I'll simply say this, that it is really hard to find textual support for any of that. Uh, it's more we think God is like this, and so if God is going to be a really loving God, surely he's going to mitigate hell. I'm not saying that can't be true. I'm simply saying I find it difficult. It's not usually based on what the text says. It's based on what I want to believe about God. So I'm not sanguine about those theories. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not telling you that couldn't be true. I simply couldn't support that from the text. So the people that are outside the gates, the whole point of that is there will be people outside the gates. Okay? There's only one question that you haven't asked that people always ask, and that is, will my beloved dog be in heaven? <laughs> and since you didn't ask, I'm not even going to open that can of worms. But our next series 
will be walking with Jesus. Remember, two Wednesdays, we won't have class. We'll start back up. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to study the Gospels. I want to study what Jesus taught. You know, we've talked about a lot of other things. Let's get back to talking about Jesus, but I want to do it in a different way. Jesus' ministry lasted about three years, and he traveled a lot of places. What I want to do in this is, let's travel with Jesus. Will there be maps? You bet there'll be maps. <laughs> Will there be pictures of these places? Think of it like touring Israel with Jesus, and let's take a place each week and talk about and teach something that he taught there. Does that sound interesting? I think it's a great way to talk about Jesus' name. Thank you guys very much. That's what we'll do in three weeks. So thank you so much for being with us in this.